composers' opus ones are rarely their actual first compositions. What they usually represent is the work the composer decides to publish as his official opus one. A kind of proclamation to the world, I'm a fully mature composer and this is the first fruit of that maturity. Brahms's Opus One piano sonata may have actually been begun and was almost certainly finished after the work we know as Opus Two. But if you hear both works together, you'll probably understand why Brahms felt like saying, start here. As Brahms's biographer Malcolm MacDonald says, the sonata we know as Opus Two is much afflicted by attacks of Sturm und Drang. Right from the beginning, it sounds like the work of an inexperienced composer determined to make a big romantic impression. Not all of that writing there is quite as powerful in effect as Brahms clearly meant it to be. But compare that to the beginning of the sonata Brahms published as Opus 1. The piano writing is far less showy, but it creates a stronger impression, not least because we can sense at once that this is music that knows where it's going. of that music was just 20, but it already sounds as though he's learned a great deal, and not just learnt, but inwardly digested. There are two possible tributes there to composers who remained gods for Brahms throughout his life, Beethoven and Schubert. That bold chordal beginning, and especially its rhythm, dum, da-dum, da-da-dum-dum, recall the opening of Beethoven's mightiest and most ambitious piano sonata, the so-called Hammerklavier. At the same time, there's something of the massive C major confidence of the beginning of Schubert's Wanderer fantasy, and again the same sense of setting out on a journey. there, perhaps. It's still pretty clear, however, that Brahms isn't simply being derivative. He's already recognisably Brahms. You 
can understand listening to that why Robert Schumann was so impressed by the young Brahms's efforts at this time, and particularly why he called Brahms's piano works veiled symphonies. Schumann described Brahms as arriving in the world fully armed, like the classical figure of Minerva, who was born fully grown from Jupiter himself. Schumann's remark also suggests that he was keen to believe the best of young Brahms and had possibly spent rather less time looking at Opus 2. The thing is, if you take Brahms's Opus 1 as his official first work, the work of a 20-year-old, it's astonishing how much of the mature Brahms, the Brahms we know especially from the symphonies and concertos, is already in place. Not long after that opening, we're treated to a display of muscular counterpoint. Now, counterpoint is a preoccupation of the classical era, not the romantic, and it's very typical of the later Brahms. In passages like that, we already hear Brahms, the so-called classical romantic, the figure we know from his middle and old age, already seems in place in this Opus 1. We get the romantic side of Brahms soon afterwards. This was a composer who was as much attracted to Schubert's song symphonies and sonatas as he was to the concentrated dialectical argument of Beethoven's symphonies. We have a very long singing melody, which in itself is a very Brahmsian feature, which emerges poetically from the end of the first section. Counterpoint melts into lyricism. Next comes another of those mysterious, deeply romantic passages, veiled in another sense, that so often turn up in Brahms's later symphonies and chamber works. What's also striking here is the way that the ideas flow on so logically from one another. This is real symphonic thinking of a kind that possibly made Schumann envious. Schumann's thinking is so lateral, kaleidoscopic, but if he was envious of the young Brahms, he didn't show it. He published a tribute to Brahms that was almost ecstatic in its praise, but clearly sincere. Brahms was the future. But there are also interesting examples in Brahms's Opus 1 of courses that the composer didn't follow. The second movement, for instance, is a piece of pure German Romantic nationalism. It's marked nach einem altdeutschen Minnerlieder, after an old German love song. You don't just get the folk song itself, you get the choral replies to each phrase. It's the so-called call and response of so many kinds of folk music.
Brahms soon left German nationalism behind him. In fact, the word German in the title German Requiem, one of his most important later works, means something quite different. Brahms later regretted using that title and wished instead he called it a human requiem. There's another example of a path not taken or abandoned relatively quickly in the third movement. This is a fiery, fast-moving, dance-intoxicated scherzo. Hints of Schumann, perhaps, and more than a hint of Beethoven. did keep writing energetic Beethovenian scherzos, right up to his piano quintet, which was composed just over a decade later. And the form has one last flourish in his second piano concerto, composed in his 48th year. But as he matured, he preferred gentler, more intermezzo-like movements. You find these from the first symphony onwards, in place of scherzo might be a good way of putting it, to borrow a phrase from Elgar. It's been suggested that this is because Brahms was temperamentally incapable of writing Beethovenian scherzos, but Opus 1 clearly shows that that is quite wrong. But the finale brings one salutary reminder in relation to the mature, the familiar Brahms. There's a tremendous amount of vivacious, rhythmic experimentation here. Try counting along with this opening. If you don't know it, I'll be surprised if you can guess what the time signature is, or even where the main beat is. Brahms playing Stravinsky and rhythmic games? If that surprises you, then perhaps that's a comment on the way that we've got used to hearing Brahms played in recent times. Looking at the scores of the symphonies and concertos, you'll see plenty of playing around with the beat. Where's the emphasis in bars like this? When was the last time you noticed the teasingly irregular phrase lengths there? That's the third movement of Brahms's first symphony. With the kind of plush, deep pile sound and reverential tempos that conductors so often choose in Brahms, that sort of thing so rarely comes to life. Brahms's Opus 1 reminds us forcibly that it should, uh, that it's our loss if we don't hear it, not to mention Brahms's. So how does Alban Berg's Opus 1 compare to that of Johannes Brahms. Berg, after all, was a composer who learned a lot from Brahms. He was 12 when Brahms died, and he was in his early 20s, like Brahms, when he composed his Opus 1, a piano sonata. Berg had just finished his studies with Schoenberg. Schoenberg was an important musical father figure, just as Schumann was, all too briefly, for the young Johannes Brahms. Berg needed a lot of encouragement, like Brahms, though you'd never guess it from the music we've just heard. 
Berg also struggled with big forms. Songs came to him quite naturally, but larger-scale arguments were problematic. They cost him a huge amount of effort and took up plenty of time. It's later said that Berg and his contemporary Paul Hindemith both gave up using opus numbers at the same age, in their mid-thirties, for the opposite reasons. Hindemith because he was embarrassed to have reached opus 100, Berg because he was embarrassed only to have reached opus 7. For this momentous opus 1, Alban Berg planned a sonata in three movements. But after the first movement, it seems that inspiration dried up. Berg was near to despair over this, until Schoenberg told him that perhaps the reason the ideas wouldn't come was that Berg had said all there was to say in this first movement. So Berg published the sonata as a single-movement piece. As with Brahms, though in a very different way, there's an awful lot of the mature Berg already here in this Opus 1. The sonata has a declared key of B minor, but it's a very insecure home key. The opening theme falls eventually to a B minor triad. It touches it almost accidentally, en passant, as you might say, and then almost immediately it's blurred again. Berg's sonata does sink into B minor dutifully at the end, but it's still ambiguous and slightly surprising. It's not exactly a logical harmonic resolution, QED you might say. It's more like any port in the aftermath of a storm. That ambiguous settling into a key at the end is very similar to the way Berg's last completed work, the Violin Concerto, sinks into a not-quite-certain B-flat in its final bars.
any port in a storm, I said about the ending of Berg's Opus One Piano Sonata. Well, we certainly do hear the stormy Berg of the two great expressionist operas, Fotzek and Lulu, at the central climax of the sonata. It's writing that echoes the great outpourings of almost voluptuous pain of the opera's central characters. In that central climax of Berg's Opus One Piano Sonata, we find the young Berg, like the young Brahms, striving for orchestral power and richness. The high point is marked FFFF, Fortississimo. And you can also hear voices in that piano writing, I think, a tragic drama, unmistakably. It's full of the sense of the impossibility of desire ever finding fulfilment in this life, like Wagner's Tristan. But for Berg, it seems, even death rarely provides relief. There's no peace at the end of the sonata. There is something else striking, though. You may have noticed a prevalence of falling figures, especially falling chromatic figures. They're present in the very opening theme, especially in the accompaniment. It's a kind of melancholic downward slide. sliding chromaticisms crops up again and again in Berg's sonata. You may feel like echoing the words of Orsino in Twelfth Night, that strain again, it had a dying fall. And it's not just an emotional connection. That recurring, almost rotating pattern is rather like an anticipation of the note-row technique in twelve-note composition. Sometimes, indeed, Berg inverts this basic pattern, but it's still recognisably the same, like, again, the way a serial composer would manipulate his tone row. Berg's teacher Schoenberg is often portrayed as the great Moses figure, the lawgiver of 20th century music, the pioneer of twelve-tone techniques. But Berg's Opus One shows that, with a little adjustment, a little expressive pliability, you might say, Serial techniques fitted his hand like a tailored glove. Unlike Brahms, Berg may not have sprung into the world fully armed, but as his Opus One shows, in essence he was fully prepared.